big thanks to Capital One for sponsoring this month of Revision Path. The Capital One digital team is a diverse group of people who work together to build great products for the enterprise and to disrupt how people interact with their money, their bank, and their financial lives. Curious about what they're working on and how they're growing? Check them out at CapitalOneCareers.com or at their Medium community at Medium.com forward slash Capital One Design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to tell you about an upcoming event that is presented by Glitch Media. Forums at Civic Hall, in partnership with Facebook and Glitch, are hosting the State of the Internet 2019 on February 28th at Civic Hall in New York City. Come out and hear Glitch CEO Anil Dash and Matt Mitchell of Crypto Harlem and Tactical Tech address some of the challenges facing the health of the internet as well as offer some frameworks on how companies, tech workers, users, and governments can help make the internet a better place. Doors open at 5.30 p.m., and tickets are on sale now at eventbrite.com. Check the show notes for a link to purchase tickets. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. There's three things that sets designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook Design's work has impact at scale, including your friends and family or people from the other side of the globe. Facebook Design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Did you know that MailChimp sends 6 billion emails a week and helps millions of customers in over 175 countries? I mean, with millions of customers also comes millions of insights. So you can get really powerful data on your campaigns and ads and get personalized advice for your next marketing move. So whether you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, give MailChimp a try. Check them out at MailChimp.com. For the month of February, Revision Path will be talking to black women who are a part of the Capital One Digital Team. The Capital One Digital Team is a diverse group of people who work together to build great products for the enterprise and to disrupt how people interact with their money, their bank, and their financial lives. This week, we're talking to Belinda Jones, a UX designer at Capital One Bank. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Belinda Jones, and I work as a user experience designer at Capital One, and I work with an agile software development team supporting an internal credit risk application. Now, it's interesting because when I talk to UX designers in the past, I don't know if any of them have really worked with development teams. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how it works? Sure. Maybe I can even just go back to 
just the whole what the day looks like. So okay. uh, coming in would be daily stand-ups and it's just the regular information, what's been worked on, any bottlenecks and being able to reach out to people on the team and say, hey, you know, can I grab maybe five minutes of your time? And then there's also the product team as well. That's part of the overall team. And it's just just constant communication. Some of the teams are are, are remote out in Richmond. And it's, you know, a, a lot through Zoom, emails. And then it's just, you know, I am in, hey, can you tell me more about a certain feature as it pertains to design? So there's definitely a lot of communication. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's a, a distributed team. Like you said, some of them are remote. Right, right. Okay. All right. What's the most surprising thing that you've learned since working at Capital One? Well, surprising thing was Capital One actually has, now within the umbrella of One Design, which is that houses all the designers, we have about more than 400 designers. For So for a bank to have that number of designers, I mean, it's amazing like totally amazing. And and knowing that each and every designer is slotted into whether it's a line of business or with its card, it's commercial, it's risk. It's amazing at what level of detail we can actually dive into. Yeah, I would say when I think of banks, I don't necessarily think of design. <laughs> right. So it's, it's interesting that Capital One has dedicated that much design power to what they do. Right. And it's amazing because it's getting to know who our users are. I mean, our users are super diverse. Mm. So being able to hire designers who can storytell, who can research, who can conduct user interviews, usability studies, and being able to really get to the heart of who are our real clients and users out there. And you mentioned that you're working in the you said credit management or credit risk department? Yes. So risk is a huge thing. I mean, for any bank, risk is a really, really big deal. And just trying to create applications that mitigate that risk, like being able to know right off the bat, any entity or any business that Capital One goes into business with, knowing firsthand how they rate up. And being able to always have that clear view of, okay, should we continue doing business with this particular entity or should we be aware of things that are going on in the financial space? It sounds like that Capital One is also a very diverse workforce. When I spoke with Alana, Alana Washington, for, for the people that are listening, is the one who has helped kind of coordinate all these interviews. And I was really, really glad that everyone that I'm interviewing is a black woman. So it, it seems like the team at, at Cap One is pretty diverse. Would you say that? I would say we are definitely growing and we have a number of programs in place to somewhat build that diversity, mm-hmm. even just within design. Because even in my software development team, I'm the only black person. So again, there's different facets of where diversity is. So, but I think within design, we are definitely kind of heading in that direction of being able to bring more people on board. Nice. How long have you been at Capital One? Right. So I've been at Capital One for slightly more than a year. 
And prior to that, I was in academia for more than 10 years. Oh, let's get into that. That's that's interesting. Talk a little bit about that. I saw just from doing my research that you've taught at a few art schools. You taught at the University of Maryland, University College, I think is, was that the last place where you taught? Right, right. That was the last place. And actually, that was the online, and then the Art Institute was the on-ground. Okay. And it was just, I mean, it's, a lot of people ask me, well, how do you do it? Like, how do you teach higher education? And you spend 10 years, like, what was your whole experience? And I have a love for learning. Like, I have a love for learning. And it was that passion. Like you wake up every morning, you're like, wow, I'm actually imparting knowledge. And then also being able to create and build all these projects and and lesson plans that you could see through every day will be covering certain features and and being able to see what that end product should look like, Mm -hmm. but then also mentoring students along the way. And again, you know, seeing students coming from their first day, their first day of college and seeing them walk down during graduation is, I mean, it's amazing. So, and actually when I look back, I'm like, wow, it went really, really fast. But I mean, education is big for me, super, super big for me. And even where I am in Capital One, always advocating for scholarship, always, you know, hey, what's the next conference? What's the next webinar? What's the next book that I can read? Because I know trying to stand out in this field is always being in par with technology, you know, what's, what's, what's out there, information, technology, so on and so forth. I was just about to ask if you have chances to kind of impart education or do that same thing while you're at, at Capital One. But no, that's really good that Cap One offers those kinds of scholarships and that you have the, the professional opportunities to kind of also impart that education as well. Yes, yes. And one thing that I'm also passionate about and kind of going back into academia was mentoring. And knowing that, you know, again, coming into Capital One, I was coming from a totally different environment. Mm-hmm. Academia, it's very collaborative, very, you know, sort of scholarship. And, and we're in a room together with other professors who are PhD level and, you know, and just in this midst of discussion and learning. And I totally miss that. And, and seeing, okay, how can I somewhat bring that into one design or into Capital One and, and always have this honest collaboration of, hey, you know, let's work together. I mean, we we all are working towards the same thing, but being able to not only mentor, but not only mentoring new people coming in, but also mentoring those who are trying to move up, whether it's leadership positions or being able to lead projects. So that's something that I'm really kind of passionate about and seeing if I can be a part of something like that in Capital One. Let's go back to when you mentioned that you've taught both on the ground, like you said, at, the, at these uh, art institutes that you've taught at, and then from there kind of shifting to online. I'm really curious as to what differences there are. I mean, aside from just virtual versus physical, but what differences are there in teaching about design from those two separate types of vantage points? Let's see, there's that hands-on that students will always say, you know what, I cannot do online courses because mm-hmm. I miss that interaction, that hands-on, especially when you're dealing with things like 2D drawing. It's hard to do it online. And then you also have that face-to-face critique session whereby you are seeing the, 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 the actual visual piece, whether it's a website or a poster. 
and being able to interact and look at the person presenting and being able to say, hey, you know, you did an amazing job. You you sounded very articulate. You didn't sound nervous. But online, it's it's really hard to catch that or even correct that. And with online, I found at least the students that I was teaching, these were adult, you know, students who were active in the military. Mm. Uh, and they kind of knew their place. They knew why they were there, you know, which made a huge difference. So in regards to keeping them on track, they had that from day one. So it was a little easier to to somewhat teach them because they were at that point. Yeah. But when it came to that visual component, that's why you have hybrid courses whereby you meet face-to-face once in the week and then everything else is online interactive. Nice. I know when I taught online, I feel like getting students to to understand the discipline that it takes to do it online was kind of the hardest part. So when you said that you were teaching these military students and they got it, I'm like, what's that like? Right. I don't know what that is. Because <laughs> sometimes I would talk to students and it's like pulling teeth. I'm like, you have to, you know, log in and say something X number of times a day. I taught like a principles of web design course. So nothing super intensive. It's like teaching, you know, how to make an anchor tag, how to bold text. And this was part of a, a BIS degree, a business information systems program. So right off the bat, the students coming in weren't designers. In some yeah. cases, weren't even really technically inclined but they knew that they had to take this course in order to, you know, to progress in their major field. So sometimes they would come and just, they just didn't want to learn. Now, some of them, I was able to kind of, you know, show them the passion that I have for design. And then that kind of trickled over into what they do with, with their, um, you know, with their reports. But I'm curious, what have your students over the years taught you? Have they taught you anything like about yourself or about your teaching style? So over the years, it's, you really self-reflect after every semester, or in this case, it was every quarter, in what worked, what went well, and what could be improved. And every semester, you had different sets of students, different personalities, different Mm -hmm. backgrounds. And it's being able to stay in tune with each one of them, because every day was different for them. They would come in, and again, I would teach eight o'clock classes, some course, and it's knowing, okay, everyone is not on their best self at 8 a.m., but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, then as a professor coming in, I had to be all smiles and super energetic because, I mean, the class was running for two hours, Right. So mm-hmm. it's it's coming in with that that skill set of we can do this, you know, let's make this fun. And yeah, so it was just also building relationships, but also knowing that's just somewhat being able to understand that a lot of the success sometimes tied into students somewhat life issues in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I think at that young age it's it's hard for students to separate the two because some days they'll say, you know what, I just don't feel like it. Yeah, And kind of going back to what you're saying is that they're just there and they have to you take this class to move on to the next and taking that and saying, okay, how can I make this work for you? But again, making sure that you still go through the course and you're not failing it, but where can I cut you some slack? But I'm not telling them this, but where can I cut you some slack? But I know mm-hmm. you're going to pull through because I'm taking your word for it. 
right? So it, it's it's almost as if you're, you're kind of throwing them that trust and then them coming back and saying, okay, you give me that extra time, that one time or that one week, things were just not right, but I pulled through and you helped me through it. So learning lessons would be, I mean, for one, it's, I'm a very, very, very patient person, but again, the, the times when that patience really runs thin and you kind of <laughs> just go back and be like, okay, why am I doing this, right? Why am I teaching in the first place? Yeah. You know, it's it's being able to better the lives of people coming in, being able to just impart words of wisdom because some of the students coming in, you know, you need to be a parent, you need to be an aunt, you need to be a mom, you need to be a teacher. So yeah. it's like teaching the whole person and it's hard to somewhat, and, and I did it at the very beginning when I first started and I said, no, I'm only here to teach. And if you don't have what I need you to have then next person but it wasn't working it wasn't working so I I found that you had to build relationships and some of those times you had to cut some slack because then they knew okay this particular professor cares for me but they knew with the way they wanted to know it that if she's not giving me extra time for this project she doesn't care for me yeah. But from a professor's standpoint, we're like, oh my gosh, but we can't do that. We have to uphold these standards, you know, and, and, and we have been looked at by our bosses and, and deans that no, you have to set the standard, you know. So it it kind of balancing those two was sometimes really, really difficult because at the end of the day, some students didn't understand that. So you kind of had to pull back and say, okay, let me work on them one-on-one and see if that would help them, you know, just grow into themselves. And, and, and it's interesting because then you saw their work improve over time. And then towards the end of like their very last semester, I like, look at them. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're all grown up. You know, <laughs> standing tall and you look different. I mean, it's amazing. Just the growth was amazing. I think teaching helped me become like a more empathetic designer. And the reason that I say that is because oftentimes when, particularly if you're dealing with clients, even if you're dealing with, you know, stakeholders or coworkers, you sort of have to approach them in that same way. You kind of have to go to where they are sometimes. I know particularly with clients, there's a lot of education that has to go up because unless they've hired a designer before or they've worked on a creative project before, they really don't know where to start. They don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And so it would be my job to try to teach them, as you say, teach the whole person about what it's like. So granted, I can tell them what fonts I used and colors and such, but then I have to think, well, this person is a, a busy executive. Do they really care about that? <laughs> Let me just give them like the executive summary of what it is that I do so they can get a sense of of how that works. Have you found that teaching has helped you out now with the work that you do at Cap One? Yes, definitely. It's and, and going back to what you said, it's definitely given me empathy and also just patience because not everyone knows what designers, especially user experience designers, do they don't know. Mm-hmm. And with tech and product, you know, they will do what they do every day. And again, they've been doing it for years. And then design is called at the very end. You know, we need you to design this. But from a UX perspective, I'm like, okay, but what has happened in the last year? 
I need to be part of that to figure out, you know, how things should flow. Have we brought in the users? What did they say? You know, so just trying to explain to them, this is what we do. And we don't only design, we can facilitate workshops, we can interview users, we can have usability studies. So it's educating them. This is more than, I mean, we can do it all. We can also take part in creating roadmap visions and, you know, being a part of the solution, which I think but coming to one we're really trying to do is hey let's let's be part of the table as well let's kind of bring us in early as well with places like general assembly and other spots that are kind of almost churning out ux designers with these like 10 week programs or these you know multi week intensive courses it seems like we're seeing more ux designers kind of enter the field what are your thoughts on that Well, that's interesting because I also had an experience with one of these courses and I'm actually familiar with General Assembly because I I did attend a couple of classes there as well. Just coming from academia and seeing the contrast between academia and like academia in regards to four-year, two-year colleges, universities, and bootcamp courses that are in, you're out, a lot of companies don't have time to wait for people to go through these extensive programs. We're talking about four year, two years. Mm-hmm. And they're not as specific as what the industry requires right now. So with the bootcamp courses, they are in tune to what's in demand right now. And this is what we're teaching you right now. So in a sense, they're definitely feeling that need and that gap, which is amazing. They're quite expensive, but again, you know, reasons why. But I mean, I definitely have respect for them because they are doing what they need to do. And I believe students are also doing enough research to find out, number one, is this right for me? Number two, what are they teaching and how are they teaching it? So that once I come out of that, I am employable and not only employable, I have a number of different choices to choose from because everyone wants me, right? So I definitely kind of give my hand to them for sure. Yeah, I like the part about how they really kind of make sure that you're tuned in to really get a job, you know, because some companies do partner. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of them, but companies do partner with these places like a General Assembly. And it's sort of like a pipeline in a way. If you go through the course, then they know that you can work at this other company once you graduate because they've got openings and things for you because they've managed to staff other people who have worked at General Assembly. And I would say that's different from what we see with, you know, four-year institutions in some cases, and even with online places where you may go through and get the education, but there's not really a guarantee that once you graduate that you've got something lined up. I would also even say, because you said that General Assembly kind of teaches to what's going on right now, they're able to kind of turn around their curriculum in a much faster way. I remember when I taught, this was back in like 2010, 2011, they were still teaching students how to design websites with tables. And this is well into the fact now that people use CSS for layouts and things like that. And so I remember having to like campaign the dean to say, we need to change the curriculum because we're teaching them an outdated way of working and designing. And they're not going to be able to get work if they graduate out this program with this and Unfortunately, it didn't change because they said, you know, these are not designers. It's a business 
information system. They just need to know the basics. I'm like, right. well, this this is the wrong basic that we're teaching them. That basic is outdated. So I, I see that benefit with being able to teach just more up-to-date topics and subjects as it relates to the field. Right, right. And also another aspect to joining some of these camps, in a sense, is being able to network. So say, so say for instance, General Assembly is in the heart of D.C., and you have a lot of people who teach, who work in the industry, very connected. So that would be another super huge benefit of, you know, going to places like this, because people you're sitting with who are your classmates are in the industry. People who are teaching you might even work at a job where you want to work in. So that I see has been another big thing. Yeah. Did you ever have an aha moment where you knew that this was what you wanted to do for a living? Well, that's interesting. So I'm originally from Kenya. I uh, mm-hmm. grew up, born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya, and attended an all-girls high school run by Irish nuns. And when I tell people oh, wow. that, <laughs> does that exist? <laughs> <laughs> and kind of seeing what that has instilled in me over the years very, very structured, very, very structured. We had mass once a week on Fridays mm-hmm. and every day would be assembly and we would line up and the head nun would, you know, tell us the news of the day and what we had to do. But yeah, so, so being taught by nuns, you know, I remember one sister emailed a very sweet, very sweet lady and she would let us get away with everything. Mm-hmm. And you had another one, sister Maureen and oh my gosh, very tough, very tough, very, very tough. But it was good because then structure started on at a very early age. And then someone bring it in into school, bring it in into work in regards to work ethics and so forth. So I, I can definitely kind of speak to that. But in regards to how I jumped into graphic design and UX is through, actually through my dad. At the time when I finished high school, He was actually doing his research on the side and he came to me and he said, you know what, I have looked into graphic design and I've enrolled you in a college here in Kenya and I want you to join and it's a two-year associate program. I was like, "Uh, no, but I want to do business administration. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because in high school, I was really bad in economics and math. So I don't even know why I wanted to go that route. Mm -hmm. But he had done his research and he had spoken to all these professors. And we were going back and forth until I said, okay, I will do it. And I have never turned back and just kind of jumping into academia and dealing with somewhat of the same things. You have target audience, UX, you have user groups, you have problem solving in both cases, you have communicating, you have being able to create a product or a service that users can actually flow through, but be able to understand it. So that's pretty much been my journey. You mentioned your father. Who are some other influences that you've had throughout your career? In Kenya, definitely my parents. And then through college. So having finished my associate degree in Kenya, and I had classmates who pretty much filtered through and started working for huge ad agencies, Ogilvy and Maitha, McCann Erickson, and just kind of 
keeping tabs with them and, and kind of seeing how they've grown and, and what they're working on has been super inspirational. And then moving into America, because I came in right after I finished my associate degree, I, I came in as a, a transfer student. And, you know, just kind of seeing, and actually not even people in my field, just seeing what people who have migrated from different parts of the world and what they are doing, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this person is going up to PhD level every weekend in the library. I mean, that that to me was inspiring. And knowing that, okay, you got to work hard mm-hmm. <laughs> to anything. And, and again, coming in as an international student, you're paying twice as much as an in-state student. Mm-hmm. And you're paying so much money and knowing that I have no choice but to work as hard as I can. Otherwise, me and my bag are back to Kenya, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, so just people around me were very inspirational in regards to work ethics, being able to put in 100% or 100 plus, and then, you know, just kind of reading books on designers out there. And there's actually one. He's a German industrial designer, and he has an amazing quote that really, really speaks to user experience. And he says, and, and this is by uh, Dieter Rams, mm-hmm. and says, you cannot understand good design if you do not understand people. Mm. Design is made for people. So, and every time I read that, it, it just, I, I remember my, my trip to West Africa that I took on a study abroad program that, that was also part of my thesis research. And I had somewhat jumped or kind of found this study abroad program in grad school. And I was like, number one, I want to travel. <laughs> and number two, I want to experience something different. I'd never been to West Africa. Yes, I'm from Africa. I've just never been to West <laughs> Africa. But then again, that experience of coming from America to Africa and then going with a group of students who are actually coming in from the public health departments. So again, as a graphic designer, joining this team and being able to have a specific role, like what am I doing with a public health group? And knowing that, okay, so I have this thesis that I have to research on. And I was super interested in art, education, and health. And seeing how I could bridge the gap between the three. Because I'm super passionate about education and health and art. And at the time, I was working for a nonprofit in Iowa that was health-related. But it was about giving basic needs to the community, providing basic needs to the community. So again, Mm -hmm. dealing with people and people's needs. So that to me was like, wow, nonprofit for me. Like I love providing service, but more so to me, like what really, really touched, and I think just coming from a developing country is serving those underrepresented, the vulnerable populations that I call them in, in being able to provide that technology, but being able to to provide technology that works for them. And interestingly enough, you can go to the most remote part of of Kenya or Africa. Well, let me say Kenya because I know Kenya. The most remote part of Kenya, and you will find every person with a cell phone. Hmm. 
Every person has a cell phone, which is amazing. So technology is is moving. But then again, what is that technology doing for them at a day-to-day basis? So is it helping them bank better? Is it helping them monitor or keep tabs of, okay, I took out a micro loan Mm -hmm. for my small farm. Can I use this application or app on my phone to keep tabs on when is my next payment? Do I have notifications coming to me? And do I even understand what those notifications mean? So it's almost this untapped market in a sense that people having the technology in their hand, but are you using it to the its maximum and, and creating these best user experiences that only market to these populations? I think people would be surprised to know just how far technology is throughout Africa. And I, I remember this because this was way back in the day, maybe like 2005, 2006, I used to write for a site called Black Web 2.0. And I always tried to make it a focus of what I wrote about to be about technology in Africa, because people might think, oh, well, you know, South Africa, or maybe some of the bigger cities like, you know, Johannesburg, or even, you know, going up in Northern Africa, like you know, Lagos, or Tunis or something like that, or Cairo, even, I should say, but not really realizing just how much technology is throughout the continent, like in different in places you might not even think about having technology. Like a while back, I had a game designer from Cameroon. He has a, a like a 20, I think it was 20 people at the time, like a 20 person game design company in Cameroon. And he talked about how he's put the game together, how he staffed everything. And it was amazing because people don't think that something like that would come out of that place in the world. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's booming. And I remember I was home two years ago, but before that, I was there a year before that. And I was in Kenya or Nairobi in June and July, Obama was going to make his visit to Kenya for the first time. And he was actually coming in for a sermon, and I forget the name at the moment, but it was pretty much bringing young folks together in technology in regards to how can you improve the economy, whether it's farmers in a remote location in Kenya, like what can you do with technology to make sure that people are not being left behind? And a good example are my parents. They are retired. They're in their 70s, but they are farming. And they grow everything from mangoes to papayas to plantain to tomatoes, anything, you name it. So every time I see my mom with the same little book where she writes down, okay, from the farm today, Saturday, we harvested 100 bags of mangoes. And then she would have different markets within the city that she would deliver to, but then she'd also have another small scale set of buyers that she would then deliver to in case all the big markets didn't consume what she had. But this book would actually have names of each buyer and how much they still owed her. Because when you're dealing with small, like small scale buyers, Mm -hmm. they can only pay you certain amounts over a period of time. And unfortunately, that's how the business is. So for my mom to keep track of, okay, so Mama Rose over here, 
I gave her 10 bags of mangoes. She was only able to pay for 10, but she has the, she was only able to pay for five, mm -hmm. but she has the 10. So how can I keep track in my little booklet that she needs to then pay me in the next visit X, X and X amount. So again, being able to turn it around and say, okay, mom, what if you lose your notebook? Can we create a little app for you that then shows you clearly who your distributors are, who your buyers are, when you made a drop off, when Miss uh, Mama Rose is going to pay you your next payment of maybe what, $100, and then send notifications to Mama Rose and say, hey, Mama Irene is going to come and pick up her payment. You know, so it's just some of these populations that are some, and I don't want to say they're being left behind by technology, mm -hmm. but in a sense they are, but there's such a, like a world of opportunity to serve some of these, and I would say aging populations, because giving my mom an $800 iPhone phone is not going to work. Yeah. Because number one is the technology is too advanced. Mm -hmm. But then again, being able to show her, hey, this is an app that was designed for your needs. You know, yeah. it was designed for your needs to make sure that you're able to have things on the go. And then again, being able to save it on the cloud somewhere and you would have to explain it to her. But again, being able to serve if technology is produced for everyone, everyone consumes technology, but I think people should be able to consume it equally, but being able to educate those populations that are not consuming it at the same rate. And I think, you know, also as we, as we think about, you know, diversity and technology, as you just mentioned before about the iPhone with it just having too much technology, but then also thinking about the apps and the people that they would service. I feel like certainly a lot of apps, there's a wide variety of apps out there on the app store Android Play Store, whatever, Google Play Store. But they all seem to be, or mostly kind of American-centric or U.S.-centric, like they're coming out of Silicon Valley or maybe the needs that it's meeting are maybe for those that are in first world countries or, or here in the U.S. or something. But what I thought was interesting when I've covered and talked about tech in Africa is how there's a lot of banking solutions, like for doing mobile banking or for doing just like transactions from phone to phone, things of that nature, being able to have a diverse amount of people that can speak to that level of need for those kinds of audiences, I think is super important. Right. And it's something that has really gained track. So you have MPESA, M-P-E-S-A, that has, has really done amazing. So what it is, as you mentioned, is your phone being the bank. And it's yeah. simple to us whereby we do online banking. We can transfer money between each other. We can pay our bills on online banking. But for them, how it goes a little step further is they don't have to carry any money with them. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have ATMs, they have ATM cards, but to them, they can go to a restaurant, they can go to a little kiosk on the side of the road and say, hey, I wanna buy two eggs and a half a loaf of bread and pay through their phone. Yeah. You don't have to carry cash with them. And same thing for the farmer, same thing for banking, you know, so they can, you know, easily exchange money and they don't have to walk into a bank unless they, they have to. And they can also load. So say, for instance, if my mom says, hey, I, I owe someone 
in the farm a uh, hundred shillings. So she would go to a kiosk and buy those. It's almost like prepay. So yeah. you buy your and you load it to your phone and you just transfer it to that person. Hey, I paid you. We're good. We're good. So that has really taken storm. And I think it was specifically set up for developing countries. And I think that's why it has flourished. Yeah. And I think it's tried to be kind of incorporated into other already developed countries. And I, and I don't think it, it quite manifested in that sense. Well, also, you know, one of the differences, you know, with these kinds of things is just the network itself. So part of it is not just that you're dealing with like a different banking system, but the technology that serves it up to you is different. I spoke with uh, just recently, Anise Davis, she's an Android developer in Amsterdam. And her and I were kind of talking about the Android system. And she works with a startup that provides solar energy to countries in Africa, and how all of it is sort of done through Android, because Android is just kind of a more open operating system in terms of being able to work with different networks, work on lots of different phones, even work on, I would say, lower cost phones, you know, like you said, everyone can't have an iPhone, an $800 or $1,000 iPhone, it's too much technology, plus it's cost prohibitive. But if you have, you know, maybe a $150 phone or less that has the Android operating system that can still, you know, run some of these same apps, then it sort of makes more sense if you're developing along that ecosystem. Right. And it's interesting that you did mention that Android. And now that I think about it, yes, a lot of people, and, and I do remember the, the because um, sometimes when I go to Kenya, I have to buy a phone. Mm-hmm. And I will go for the cheapest phone because I'm only there for a short period of time. And it's funny because I remember the one time I did buy a phone, it was a tiny Nokia phone. It was inexpensive because that's what I needed. And I remember my niece actually laughing at me and saying, please don't show that phone around. Just put it in your pocket when you're amongst company because people don't have that phone. But again, it's kind of going to your point of being able to work with, you know, multiple solutions, but Android being kind of that open platform and also being more affordable for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you have a dream project that you would love to work on or love to do one day? Well, wow. I kind of have a couple of them and it's, you know, one, I just kind of going back to my uh, thesis project is, you know, dealing with cloth as a tool of communication mm-hmm. and, and, and dealing with um, vulnerable populations. But it's kind of taking that that step further. And just to give a little intro into, the, into my project was, you know, being able to communicate through cloth intended messages. So using symbols, you know universal symbols used in, in, in West Africa that can communicate across language lines mm-hmm. uh, that would say, hey, you know, breastfeed your child or get tested for um, HIV or, you know, immunizations for your kids or baby. So taking that step further and saying, hey, you know, creating mother a, a mother of health brand or icon and seeing her on the side of buses or posters and her being an indicator of health, take care of your whole being, take care of my family and kind of trying to incorporate technology into that and saying, so So, how can we push these efforts to the remote areas where we know people have cell phones, but then also being able to 
create interfaces that can actually work for these groups. So I think that's something that's that I'm passionate about. And again, not leaving anyone behind. It's almost like don't leave a child behind. Don't leave these groups behind because mm-hmm. technology can do wonders. But then it's also being able to create user experiences that can also work for these groups. When you look back at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? It is ever evolving. As a young girl growing up in a family of six and you know, knowing that, yes, I want to be a graphic designer, but knowing, or again, at the time, thinking that it was just one straight shot and also not realizing that technology would be a huge part of that trajectory in a sense. But what I would have liked to know then is giving myself space to kind of be more, shall I say, not open, but be more adventurous in regards to like kind of going back to what I did with the study abroad and joining a group of public health. I would not have known that. I would not have known my interest in people and and providing services at work if I had not taken that opportunity. So I think it's maybe being, and and actually maybe what I can do is go back to my young self because I think my older self is somewhat, shall I say, less open, I would say, because Being young, you're like, I can do this, I can do that, I can travel. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was getting funding for my study abroad program, I ran around campus. Like to me, those NO was not in my vocabulary. I ran around campus, department to department, asking for money. I wrote proposals and I actually got more money than I needed. So in this point in time, it's like, and maybe just the older you get, you somewhat get very tunnel visioned into this is what I want to do and this is how I can get there. But then going back to my younger self and saying, hey, you can get there in so many different ways. It doesn't even have to be through design. It could be different fields and industries and meeting people from different facets of life that can take you to where you need to be to, to kind of gain that richer life. Yeah, so that's definitely <laughs> what I would say. As you think back to your time as an educator and even now working at Capital One, are there certain skills that you feel like designers need today in order to be successful in this industry? It's interesting. Communication. And I think I was reading one of the podcasts and communication was a big one. It's so interesting. And it took me taking a communicating for influence. How do you create influence within your team, within your stakeholders? How do you communicate with influence? And it wasn't until I took this workshop within Capital One that I realized very many people have different communication styles and it can make or break your project. It can make and or break your relationships. So number one is communication. And I think a lot of people will say, well, I communicate very well. I communicate what I need and I communicate what I don't need. But there's a way you say it. There's a tone to it. There's a way you you approach people and communicate that is not conducive. So it's also those those cues that you wouldn't know until someone actually honestly mentored you and told you. And again, being from academia, I saw that all the time. 
mm-hmm. you know. But again, being in the corporate world where it's very different, but then having that mentor or even that friend who'd be like, hey, you know, how about you try it this way, you know, and then see what what result you get. Those really key areas that I think are super important. Do you think it's important for designers to kind of think about what success looks like for them? Yes. And again, it, it's definitely different for, for different people. And I think something that's universal is, hey, you know, just move on up the ladder. You know, what's yeah. the next role? What's the next role after that? So on and so forth. But I think just how we put down goals for the year, like the beginning of the year, you have resolutions. I think as designers, we also have to do a reset and say, you know what, from last year, this is what I was able to achieve. Was I happy? Was I happy with the direction? And then this new year, what do I want to do? And just kind of going back to what we talked about before, just talking before the um, interview was, you can move up the ladder, but you may not be fulfilled. So I think we have to know deep inside what will fulfill us. And sometimes it takes you doing things that don't fulfill you to actually know. Mm. So I think it's being honest with ourselves and knowing this will fulfill me because I had something similar of an experience last year. Did I like it? I did. And I loved it. I want to continue with it or maybe not quite. Let me try something else. And again, being open to try different things and also having a community that embraces and gives you that opportunity to grow and shift. Where do you see yourself in the future? What kind of work would you like to be doing, let's say, in the next five years or so? In the next five years, Definitely people-oriented. So definitely creating services for people. And again, going back to those populations that I'd mentioned, but also just day-to-day. I mean, even just as a designer, I am a consumer as well. What are those things that annoy me at the beginning of the day that I don't want to have to do? So it's almost as if UX will somewhat get into that area of how can we make lives a little bit, not even a little bit, more comfortable, you know, because we're so busy doing things. What can I take off your plate at the beginning of the day or any time of the day that you don't need to think about, but then also create that experience that is seamless, that's, I don't say invisible, because then you will know it's there, but things that would make people's lives easier. What advice has stuck with you over the years, as you went through your career, even now as you're working at Capital One, what advice has really stuck with you? I would say I, I always defer back to my dad because he and my parents, but it was more so my dad because we grew up six kids, but but five girls out of oh, one. Wow. So it was always education is the key to success. And growing up, you know, just talk to any person growing up in a developing country. When you were born, that's what you were told, you know, in high school, through college, education is the key to success and and always that yearning for learning. Not saying that just because you have acquired all your degrees, you know, they may mean nothing to someone, but how can you improve yourself? And not only career-wise, even personally, like how do you improve yourself to be a better 
person, to be a better parent, to be a better wife, husband. I mean, it's it's self-fulfillment, self-growth. And I think once we somewhat fulfill that, it then transitions into career. So it's just, just love of learning and being open to opportunities. Sounds good. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? People can find me on linkedin.com in Belinda Jones or on Twitter at Jones Belinda or on my website at belindajones.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, Belinda Jones, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I feel like you've shared so much information. I mean, from your career as an educator to now your career as a uh, UX designer with Capital One, I can certainly tell that you have this passion for education, this passion for teaching, and it's really reflected, I feel, through everything that you've said throughout this interview. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Belinda Jones, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Belinda and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries. And it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. If you like influencing strategy and working alongside technical leads and engineers on a product from start to finish, then Facebook design might be for you. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out today at Glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mayandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.